Okay, hello, and welcome to the latest edition of EdTech Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. I'm glad you found us. With me today is Maggie Halbach, Vice President of State, Local, and Education Markets at Verizon. Maggie, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Kevin. I'm glad to be here today. First, let me ask, where are you clicking in from? I am in the beautiful uh, Northern Virginia area, so just outside D.C., and um, I've been here for quite some time, and uh, happy to be with you. And it appears to me that you might still be in a remote setup, huh? I am. I am coming to you from my office, and I have lots of books behind me um, that actually are real. <laughs> <laughs> Is that one of those false things, right? Another, another crazy aspect of this of this whole situation. Well, let me ask you just to, to start off. Um, what is it looking like from, from your perspective? Do you see yourself back in an office anytime soon? I do, actually. So um, uh, Verizon is going through a series of waves. Uh, we are going through training. Uh, we're understanding how to maintain safety, uh, to work with our teams, uh, to understand the benefits of what we learned during this period of time, these past 15 months. Um, and how uh, those benefits can be maintained. But we also recognize that there are things that are important to do in person. And so um, I am part of wave one um, and uh, we are back in the office and um, I've worked with my team to evaluate how we can schedule time uh, to do brainstorming and collaborative work together in person. Uh, but we are customer facing. And so the majority of our time is actually out in the field with our clients. And we started seeing more of our customers welcoming in-person meetings um, probably over the past two months. Okay. All right. And from Verizon's standpoint, I mean, you're in an interesting place where you can look at, I assume, the data that you collect of people using your services to kind of take a temperature on where where people are on this. And I know it was a few weeks ago now, but you had a, a recent uh, study where you looked at not only the data of working, but also from learning. Maybe you could start off and talk a little bit about what you found when it came to kids and learning, uh, maybe you know during this catastrophe, and then maybe looking forward to what it means for the fall. Yeah, absolutely. So, so Verizon uh, did develop a, a look forward study um, on how we saw uh, the U.S. population um, adapt to the new way of doing things in this kind of COVID environment. And we actually did a series of surveys to understand how do we think uh, the U.S. population will change behaviors um, that are then sustainable going forward? And then how do we see maybe some of them being uh, more transient and they will revert back to old ways of working? And so we broke it down across um, how people work, um, kids and learning, which I know is near and dear to your heart, um, but also then kind of lifestyle, like um, streaming of, um, you know, the, the change in, in the movie viewership um, or, or um, media content, gaming, another uh, big thing that we saw change. Um, but then also just uh, the way that people are buying basic goods and services. Uh, so your retail um, changes and, you know, will that 
mean a shift. And so there were, there were definitely some interesting insights in that study. Um, a couple of quick things that I'll just say is that in work, we anticipate video collaboration is here to stay. Um, we actually see that this ended up being a really effective tool um, and that there are a lot of benefits uh, to employees around having a remote work environment. It creates a lot more uh, flexibility in their schedules. And we also saw corporations change the way that they thought about remote workers uh, because of co video collaboration. Um, in kids and learning, um, we see that um, about 77% of schools, um, and this was um, a little bit ago, so that may be a little higher, um, attending schools in person um, in the fall. However, we do see um, several schools, uh, particularly some high profile large school districts, see that retaining some level of hybrid um, schooling is really important. Um, and we also saw that there would be a in increased emphasis on the importance of providing online education content to students as a normal course of schooling. So those were a couple of key areas where we see things um, you know, changing for the better um, and actually improving um, both work experience as well as student experience. I think it's really interesting how you tie in the, the work with the learning because you know, as I cover education, there's always an initial focus about the children, obviously, and, and, and teaching in the classroom and teachers to that. But when you look at district operations, when you look at interactions between teachers and parents and between, say, special education and, and other departments, that's a whole other dynamic that is work-related. And you're right. I mean, it seems in my conversations that, and I'm as a parent of three, I'm not exactly sad about this, but, you know, Parent-teacher conferences can happen over Zoom. They don't have to happen after driving to a school and sitting in a fifth-grade desk, right? Yes, for two and a half hours. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> yes. No, I mean, it's interesting you say that. But the other thing that I will call out is um, school districts that had one-to-one -one programs, one-to-one -one device connectivity programs, where they already had some technology driven education in homework, in, you know, collaboration with uh, uh, work groups, they actually adapted much easier because it wasn't new. That is the big thing, right? It is never good when you're in a crisis to all of a sudden figure out how to deal with technology, right. particularly when you're talking about younger students who may not be technology savvy yet. Um, and so when you look at the pockets of successes, you see that one of the critical criteria for those pockets of success was actually students having already that technology, teachers already having that professional development and the, the curriculum and pedagogy programming that supported the technology then that made it a much simpler kind of shift. But for those school districts who literally went from in-person flash cut to, okay, welcome to distance learning, 
that was really, really challenging. And one of the key pain points that we keep hearing over and over again, and it speaks to why Verizon and our partners are really focused on kind of education technology as a service, is simplifying the way that students are able to access their online content and their online curriculum. And so when you have that really simplified where the technology, whether it's a Chromebook or a tablet, already has all of the security software loaded, they already know how to log in and use their username and passwords, they already know where to go in their learning management system and their portal. They already know what the expectations are between them, their classmates and their teacher. It's a much, much simpler environment to operate within. And then they can focus on the learning, not on, oh my gosh, how do I mute this collaboration tool? And oh my gosh, I locked myself out because I tried to type in the wrong password three times. You know. Those pain points are really what I call as kind of the hangover of COVID. And when we actually embrace technology and put it in its proper place for how we deliver quality curriculum and quality content, then it actually can be a really successful outcome. Yeah, I mean, in a lot of ways, I've, I've called this the greatest beta test in the, in the history of education or, or anywhere, right? Okay. I mean. All, all those educators who maybe had a resistance to the technology because they always taught algebra the same way for 25 years, what well, couldn't do it anymore. So we've all been through this group of several different traumas, but one of which is getting used to Zoom and, 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 and having interactions this way. Um, one of the key um, problems, challenges uh, that also was a stark reality was the idea of digital equity uh, that came up. I mean, that's a... That's a topic that has always been uh, top of mind, but it kind of almost a theoretical sort of thing. And then March 2020 comes around and there are tech directors in their cars driving around wireless hotspots to kids that they never realized didn't have access at home. And then you see wide pockets in, in rural areas and as well as in, uh, you know, in, in urban areas where you don't have that technology. The good news is that folks like Verizon and other telcos and other ed tech uh, companies really stood up and did their best to get everyone connected. Now, it's not complete yet. Um, where does Verizon see the solution to making this simple, not only for the technology for itself, but how people pay for it? Is it at the district? Is it the parent? Like, and and that, that education is an especially messy area when it comes to that. Uh, is there any kind of sunlight coming out of the mist with that? Yeah, so a couple quick things. So Verizon, you know, through our partnerships with some of the largest school districts um, like LAUSD, um, we, we ended up kind of getting, and it's funny when I look back to the March timeframe of 2020, um, there were some school districts that were really quite kind of on the cutting edge, recognizing the importance of this di digital equity and digital inclusion challenge as we were heading into kind of that shutdown. Through partnerships with entities like that, we actually ended up Verizon being able to bring 
40 states in the District of Columbia, which covered 38 million students, the ability to actually get substantially discounted internet access. And we were able to do that by actually partnering with the state superintendents, but it was also around how the funding was coming out of CARES money. And so it was coming from CARES into the states and the state superintendents were able to see the fact that they had this problem, this burgeoning problem. And so we were able to have conversations with the largest school districts and the state superintendents to actually build this very robust program. The other thing that was somewhat groundbreaking was the role that wireless broadband played in delivering this internet access. And I would tell you, it's because of the kinds of infrastructure investments that company like, companies like Verizon have been making to ensure that services like 4G LTE are actually able to, de to deliver high quality broadband, high quality internet access to these students and faculty and staff and teachers so that when we were all in our homes, we were actually able in many cases to get to students that we had never been able to get to before. Another thing was that it was not tied to the household or to income level. It was tied to, do you have a broadband connection at your house or not? And do you need to get access to school? And so some of the hurdles, just because of the crisis, were eliminated. There was no uh, proof required in many instances. It just, it was a student saying, I don't have broadband at my house. So yes, I need broadband connectivity in order to access school. So that was one of the key things that I saw was very helpful, was cross-functionally government, industry, schools, parents coming together to try and solve this problem in a relatively agile way. And you think about how um, fragmented some of our school districts can be across the country with very different policies and regulations and requirements. What was very helpful about this was getting the states and the largest school districts to step in and actually have some of that leadership around how to go about doing this very quickly. That's a really, yeah, that's what that's a really strong insight. So what you're talking about is that instead of um, a relationship with 15,000 school districts, you have 50 states and the top 10 districts. It makes it a lot easier to move monies and to set policies and, and set things around. And then maybe takes the burden off of the parent. And in a lot of cases, the district, right? I mean, you just- that's right. I mean, so are you applying, for, it's almost like applying for E-rate to the state instead of to the, instead of to the feds and you flip a switch? It could it be that simple? <laughs> I don't know if it could be that simple because, you know, when you do this in an emergency, you're trying to get the funds as quickly as possible to those that are in need. You go to a second point though, which really ties into ECF. So the emergency connectivity fund that actually came out in, uh, as a byproduct of the American Rescue Plan. And I would say your, your second question was around sustainable funding sources. Mm. 
So universal service fund arguably was the vision of the sustainable funding source. Interestingly enough, the E-rate eligibility does actually reimburse school districts that meet the criteria um, for in-building Wi-Fi and for the Chromebooks. But what it doesn't reimburse in its legacy form is the connections in the student's home. And so when you think about what was the problem, the problem was is that even in an environment where you had a one-to-one -one device to student, many of those devices were only Wi-Fi enabled. And if you didn't have broadband at home, there was no Wi-Fi. So while that Chromebook might've worked just fine in the classroom, that Chromebook doesn't work well in the park, at the homeless shelter, or in a home that doesn't have broadband. Right. And so one of the questions that we've been asking is how can we make every connected device that school districts are funding for their students cellularly enabled so that wherever you are, you can pick the best access method. The other benefit to that is much like that work environment, right? Where you have an enterprise administer that's keeping your, your work device secure and locked down and they're doing you know, endpoint scans and they're doing virus scanning. You want that same thing to be for your students. You don't want these kids running around with you know, unprotected equipment and unprotected access to the internet. And so security has to be top of mind for us when we think about this edu education technology stack for our students, because we really see that students needing to access digital content for their learning is here to stay. It's how they learn in high school. It's how they learn in college. And we anticipate that that will be just as critical for primary school learners as it is for secondary and upper education learners. Does that leave 5G to be the ultimate platform that if, if that technology is baked into devices, that, that could be that answer? It definitely could be, which gets to a whole other topic <laughs> on making sure that we have enough 5G enabled uh, devices and enough 5G chips. <laughs> well, we'll, we'll save that for another podcast because we're actually starting to run out of time. And I knew the hardest part would be the end of the conversation because there are so many aspects of this that, that we can tackle. But let me uh, finish up with kind of a, a glass half full question on um, where you see um, the best case scenarios coming out to say that, you know, we continue to have fully in-person um, opportunities for students all across the country. And yet there are still many that will now have the opportunity to be fully remote and then whatever flavor of hybrid in between you have. Um, Give us your kind of crystal ball prediction on what that looks like in, in, in three years and maybe even long-term five years. We won't hold it to, you to it. I'll, I'll, I'll erase this after four. I'll, I'll do my best with my prognostication and my crystal ball. But um, I really see that our students are going to expect that they have ubiquitous connectivity and that it is secure connectivity that is filtering for bad actors 
trying to do bad things to me as a student. I also anticipate our students are going to expect an entirely integrated learning management system that allows me to go to trusted spaces and places to gain approved content and curriculum that my school district, my professor, my teacher has authorized for me to consume as part of my syllabus for my classes. And that is gonna go all the way down into your primary schools, all the way up into your graduate programs. And that there will be a very robust environment for immersion of experiences and collaboration with other students and teachers and faculty and staff in that immersive environment. So that we really eliminate space and place and we really allow our students to get back to being explorers and discoverers of how things work in the world and really ignite creativity and optimism among our students. So that's a little bit about my crystal ball of three to five years from now. Well, I'll, I'll go with it. That sounds pretty good to me. <laughs> and as it, yeah, each progressive conversation I have as we kind of get out of this mess, the, uh, the better I feel about it. And I really think that with uh, the work that you're doing and Verizon's doing and uh, the, the industry that um, we really will kind of come out better of it, come out on the better of it, <laughs> so to I say. Agree. But so Maggie, thank you again for your time and your insights. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you, Kevin. I appreciate your time this afternoon. It was great to chat with you. And thanks everybody for, for watching this episode of EdTech Today. I hope you click around for another one soon.